Turn to our series in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. Um, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is found on page 1,229. And you may want to keep that open, whether you're following along at home or in the Pew Bible, um, as the words may disappear from the screen here afterwards. But we're about to conclude the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, and these chapters are intimately connected. They all relate to the state of the church at Corinth and Paul's relation to the people there. And let's just say it's a little tense. It's been a little tense in Corinth. So hear now God's word. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to stop in the middle of this week to stop and reflect upon your word, 
to meditate upon who you are, to consider your grace, to consider the comfort that you give to those who are downcast. Lord, we ask that you would comfort us this morning, that you would strengthen us, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Is it possible to experience forgiveness and healing and restoration in our relationships when we've experienced brokenness and alienation? The Christian answer to this question is, yes, it is possible, but only with God's help and only with repentance. We live in a world that is increasingly unfamiliar with the three-letter word sin. But we're not unfamiliar with broken and estranged relationships. We have experienced them in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, and regrettably in our churches as well. The effect of sin is to alienate and estrange us from both God and other people. It creates unhealthy distance between us and God and us and others. And sin was present in, in the city of Corinth, 2,000 years ago. It was creating problems in relationships that Paul, and Paul had introduced people in Corinth to the good news of Jesus, the good news of reconciliation with, with God the Father. He had spent a year and a half teaching about who God is and what he did to restore people's relationship to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to God and also to one another. There have been a number of sins that have reared their ugly heads in, like weeds uh, in Corinth and as well in our lives too. And in Corinth, these weeds, these sins needed to be uprooted from God's garden at Corinth. What kind of weeds, what kind of sins did they experience there? Well, there was pride, the kind of pride that puffs people up with conceit and leads to divisions in the church. And there was idolatry, and there was sexual immorality as well. Paul has already mentioned a situation where sin needed to be addressed. I want to go back to chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, because again, these, these first seven chapters are integrally connected and intimately connected. Now, if anyone has caused pain, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 5, he has caused it not to me, but, not, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrows. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now we don't all know all of the details that Paul has is talking about here. Paul is being very discreet as he writes. He does not tell us the names of the persons involved here. But what is clear is that forgiveness is the only hope for restoring such a person. In what? order for there to be forgiveness, however, there must also be repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction, and a change of life. So coming back to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul picks up a point that he made back in chapter 6, verses 13, where he writes, make, actually in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. And if you look at your footnote in your Bible, 
you'll see that it's, it likely says, in your hearts. It's not mentioned there. It's, it's implied. Literally, it's make room for us. Receive us. And again, back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Paul again, chapter 7, verse 2, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupt, corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Unlike some of the other religious teachers in Corinth, or other leaders in other times, Paul has not wronged anyone. He has not set a bad example for anyone, nor did he, his co-workers. And that's why he could write to them in, in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. And looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a chapter we have not yet come to, verses 17 and 18, he says, Did I take advantage of you through any of those I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Neither Paul nor Titus have defrauded anyone. Paul has not used his position for gain, unlike the false teachers in Corinth who have come after him, unlike Judas Iscariot, the first corrupt church treasurer who used his position for selfish gain. How can I say that about Judas Iscariot? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray him, to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And it says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Unlike false teachers in Corinth, or unlike Judas Iscariot, Paul did not defraud. Paul did not mislead. He didn't take advantage of anyone, and nor did his co-workers. Paul is eager to be on good terms with the church in Corinth, and for that congregation to be repentant and obedient to God. He loves the church in Corinth. He loves them as a parent loves a child because he is their father in the faith. He introduced them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 7, I'd say that, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul is committed to this church. He's willing to lay down his life for them if necessary. He expresses his emotion, his powerful emotions freely here. And he goes on in verses 4 and 5 and says, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I, have, I am overflowing with joy. This is one of the few times in the Bible where pride is used positively. Most of the time, pride is condemned because it's unattractive. 
It's because we think better of ourselves or more highly of ourselves than we ought and harms our relationship with God and with others. But Paul here, the spiritual father, speaking to his spiritual children in the faith, he's proud and he's desiring to be reunited with them in mutual love. Now Paul has plenty of challenges as an apostle and follower of Jesus. And he mentions some of those here in verse 6. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. When Paul's talking about fighting, he's likely talking about quarrels or disputes, perhaps with unbelievers where he was speaking there, or maybe within the church as well. And when he's talking about fears within, he may be referring to fear of persecution, which he was likely frequently under the threat of, or fears about spiritual losses incurred if the Corinthians did not react positively to his severe letter that he'd written. And Paul goes on in, in 2 Corinthians, again, in verses we haven't read today, in chapter 11, verse 3, and he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He fears that the Corinthians may be led astray. Well, how are you feeling after a year of the pandemic and its effects? What fears do you have? It's been a hard year for everyone. Hard year for some more than others. Most of you, I'm sure, feel weary. Some may feel also downcast and discouraged by what has happened to our nation or perhaps happened within our families or in our individual lives as well. It's been an extraordinarily difficult assignment for, for some of us in our congregation. Some of us know a little bit about it, perhaps, but maybe not. Maybe nobody knows what you've been going through in the last year, how hard it's been for you, how difficult, how discouraged you feel at the end of this pandemic. And actually, we're not even at the end of this yet, though we hope we're getting close. So likely all of us this morning need the comfort and the consolation of God to strengthen us in this moment, in this day. How does God comfort Paul? How does he comfort us this morning? How would he comfort us this morning? He uses the gospel for one, the hope and good news of forgiveness, the new covenant that he mentions in chapter 3, the reconciliation that he mentions in chapter 5 here of 2 Corinthians, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how God applies this good news to our hearts through the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. But God also uses other believers in our lives to comfort us. That's why it's important that we get back to meeting together in person, face to face. We need the comfort and encouragement that we can bring by, by gathering together and meeting together in person. And he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 7, but God, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort by which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, of your mourning, your zeal for us, so that I rejoiced still more. 
I remember in my second or third, actually it was my third or fourth year of college, I, I was heavily involved in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the University of Virginia. And I was coordinating a, an event for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I don't remember if it was for high school students or college students, but it was on the campus there, the grounds of the University of Virginia. And we didn't have much money to pay uh, speakers at that time or to house them. And we had invited a, a former professional soccer player whose name was, was Aidan McKenzie. And he stayed at this house. I don't even know what we offered him, probably a floor space on the floor in our, our house with a bunch of Christian guys living there. Aiden's task officially was to speak once or twice at a planned event to college and high school students. And I don't remember a word of what he said. I'm sure he, he shared his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ uh, from a low point in his life. But what I do remember is this, that God used Aiden McKenzie to encourage me who was downcast who was encouraged, and he used Aiden through staying in our house and the personal conversations that we had while he was there in that day or two, some over meals and some spending time. And I remember him leaving and I thought, God had sent him not just to speak that weekend, but to minister to me personally. Perhaps you've experienced that kind of comfort. I've experienced it countless times, maybe even today, just being able to meet together here in person with, with some of you. But perhaps you've experienced it too, the kind of comfort that we are able to bring to one another as believers in Christ. When, when some of us are discouraged and downcast, we can bring hope and encouragement to one another through a word, like a cup of cold water on a hot day. That's the way Christian fellowship works when it's working well. God uses other believers to comfort us to refresh us. Titus refreshes Paul when he returns from Corinth, and the Corinthian believers refresh Titus by responding to Paul's letter well, which did not have to go that way, by the way. It could have gone badly. The Corinthians could have been offended by Paul's sharp letter, but that's not what happened. They received it the way Paul intended it, and rather than further damaging their relationship, it brought healing and hope and restoration. The Corinthians had a longing to be right in their in right relationship with Paul. They mourned. They were saddened perhaps over their sin or their broken relationship with Paul. And they had a zeal for Paul as well. Why may Paul have been fearful or concerned about their response? Well, he had written this, this sharp letter, sharply worded letter, a stinging letter to the Corinthian church calling them to, to repent and discipline. He calls it my letter in verse 8. And it grieved Paul to write such a letter. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. There's some disagreement among Bible-believing scholars as to, whether, to which letter Paul is referring to here. Was this letter the letter we call 1 Corinthians that we have in our Bibles? Or was it some other letter that we no longer have that's, that's lost, that was more severe, more stinging than 1 Corinthians? And we don't have time to, to get into that uh, further, but I, I'll simply say that the commentators I respect take different positions on this question of which letter is it that Paul was writing here. But what matters for our purposes is this that real repentance 
is necessary for full restoration of relationships, both in our relationship with God and with other Christians. Let me say that again. Real repentance is necessary for full restoration of relationships, both in our relationship with God and with other Christians. Paul says in verse 10, which is probably the verse that, that's the key to this passage for me, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, there are two kinds of grief that we can have. We can have godly grief or we can have worldly grief. Godly grief or God, godly sorrow is God-focused. It's God-centered. It understands, as King David did in the prayer that we read earlier from Psalm 51, that no matter who else that we sin against or offend, the greatest offense is always against God. And this offense against God is ultimately what most grieves a person. Godly grief is in accordance with God's will. Worldly grief, on the other hand, or worldly sorrow, is self-centered. It may be full of self-pity. It may be full of self-accusation. But it, either way, it's all about me. There may be a sense of sorrow or regret that I got caught, or a sorrow or regret over the consequences. The relationship is damaged or it's broken. But again, it's all about me, my loss, my shame. It does not lead to repentance as godly grief does. Consider two of Jesus' 12 apostles, Peter and Judas Iscariot. Peter claimed that he would die for Jesus, but then he goes and he denies Jesus, not just once, but three times. In Matthew's gospel, it says, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he wept bitterly. Peter felt sorrow over those denials, but he repents and he's restored in John chapter 21 after Jesus' resurrection. It was not just a sorrow that led to regret, and that's where it ended. No, Peter's godly sorrow continues on to repentance. But consider another of Jesus' 12 apostles, Judas Iscariot. He betrays Jesus for money. He uses his position as an insider with Jesus to allow the chief priests to capture Jesus. Judas also experiences some sorrow or regret about what he had done. Again, in Matthew's gospel, it says, Then when Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. There was some regret there. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Judas, is experienced, he experiences sorrow. He experiences regret for his actions. But it does not lead to repentance. Instead, it leads to another sin, the taking of his own life. What is the difference then between that godly grief and worldly grief. Well, the one leads to repentance. But what is repentance? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks and answers this question this way in question 87. What is repentance unto life 
That is unto eternal life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. In other words, it's a gift from God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's not just a grief over sin or even a hatred of sin. There's a true sense of sin and, and also of the guilt and shame that it brings, but there's also an apprehension of the mercy of God, an awareness that God is merciful. Not just how does my sin affect me or my relationships, but how does it affect God? That's why a sinner, a repentant sinner, turns to God. You turn to God to receive forgiveness from him which also gives grace to strive after new obedience. And the point is this. Not only is there forgiveness from God, but there's also a new desire to obey God and to please him. Schools often these days, after you graduate, speak of being lifelong learners. Well, Christians need to be lifelong repenters. We never outgrow the need to repent. There's an ongoing and ever an endeavoring after, a striving after new obedience because none of us have arrived yet at complete holiness. We never do this perfectly in this life, though we should seek it. Sinclair Ferguson says this about repentance. True repentance is the return to God with which the Christian life begins, continues, and ends. True repentance is a return to God with which the Christian life begins, continues, and ends. Repentance is a prodigal son making his way from the far country to the Father to serve him and receive his embrace. That return is certainly prompted by a sense of regret. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger. Repentance here means more than regret. It means a change in direction. Repentance involves a, a change in direction, a change of mind, a change of heart, and a willingness to change behavior. Now, none of us does that perfectly, but with God's help, we're seeking to grow and endeavor after new obedience. Think about Zacchaeus, the tax collector that we just read about earlier in Luke chapter 19, seeking to make restitution for the wrongs committed in the past by him. Behold, Lord, the half of the, my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If he remains a tax collector, he will need to change the way that he collects taxes as well in the future. When tax collectors came to John the Baptist, he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. That's what repentance begins to look like for a tax collector. And it might look a little further as we think of Paul's words in, the, in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 28, where he says, let the thief no longer steal. So turn away from stealing, that's part of repentance, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. He's now to work honestly. And then lastly, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Do you see the change of life, the change of thinking, the change of attitude, the change of behavior that comes with repentance? 
There is to be evidence of repentance in believers' lives, just as there is to be evidence of faith. And Paul gives us some evidence of repentance in the, among the Corinthian believers. He gives us, we'll call it, seven signs of repentance. We'll just go through them very briefly here. Seven signs of repentance among the Corinthians that are mentioned all in verse 11. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief produces in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Those were the seven earnestness, a serious and right attitude toward their situation, rather than a carelessness and indifference like they had previously toward their sin or to other sin in their congregation. Eagerness to clear themselves, a desire to correct their faults and deal with the cause of the faults as well. An indignation, a new attitude of anger or hatred or opposition to sin to what they had done. Other evidence of sin is fear that could refer to, we're not sure what the object, of Paul or of God, giving them a desire to be forgiven by God. A further evidence is longing, what would create a sense of longing in their hearts, but the alienation from God and and from his people, which their sin had caused. And a sixth evidence of, of repentance is zeal. Paul mentions here, at least among the Corinthians, focus of their desires on one object. It may be Paul and his affection, or even better would be God's glory, honoring God. And then lastly, an evidence of repentance is punishment, readiness to see justice done, a desire to make reparation or restitution for past sin the way Zacchaeus did. And again, I quote Sinclair Ferguson writing about repentance. He says this, It is a mistake to think that we repent only once at the beginning of the Christian life. It's a mistake to think that way. Repentance means the whole of life, the whole of life returning to the purposes of God. Therefore, it continues throughout our entire life. So if you are a Christian or you want to be a Christian, you are called to a lifetime of repentance. There is a beginning point, a starting point but it continues in the middle of our lives and even to the end. Paul again mentions earnestness in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This is a Hebrew way of writing here, Paul says, that that it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered wrong. It wasn't for that. It's a Hebrew way of writing. In other words, it's more like Hosea chapter 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Does God not desire sacrifice? Yes, he does desire, but mercy is more important. So Paul writes here to the Corinthians, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed, to you. So what are the results, lastly, or fruit of repentance? They're comfort, confidence, and joy. And that's what we long for. We long to experience the results or the fruit of repentance. In fact, we may want to skip the, the hard work of repentance, the humility of repentance, and go straight to the results or the, the fruit of comfort and confidence and joy. But these fruits would not be present had there not been also repentance. 
And that will be true for us as well. There had to be repentance in the lives of the Corinthians. Paul describes the the results or fruit of, of repentance as this mutual comfort and confidence and joy. And he mentions these things in the last three verses of this passage. Verses, four four verses, 13 through 16. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the, the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. And his affections for you is even greater, his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have confidence, complete confidence in you. One of the fears we may have this morning is that our relationship with God or other believers will never be as close as it once was because we sinned. But the nature of grace is that often through repentance and forgiveness, we're able to be closer than we were both with God and others, not always, but often, because we've been able to work through this, the, this issue with God's help, with repentance, and with forgiveness. Godly grief leads to repentance. Repentance involves a change of direction, a 180-degree turn, a change of heart, a change of thinking, and a willingness to change behavior. In short, it represents a change of life, but it's not just a one and done. It's a lifelong turning, returning to God as we get off course, a lifelong process of, of course correction, seeking to honor God and live for him. How does God comfort the downcast? Very often by providing comfort through the relationships of other Christians, which includes godly sorrow, repentance, forgiveness that leads to to comfort, confidence, and joy. All in the grace of God, shall we pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us comfort, that you would encourage those who are downcast among us, which may be everybody, to one degree or another. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a repentant people, those who are seeking to see a change of direction, a change of thinking, a change of attitude towards sin, one that acknowledges that it's not all about us, that first and foremost we have offended you as a holy God. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be repentant, to have a willingness to change behavior, Lord, we ask that you would bring about the the joy of forgiveness and restoration in our relationships that are broken or damaged, whether with you or with others. Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to, to help us grow. But we ask that you would give us the fruit of repentance, that we might know or know again joy and comfort and confidence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.